Well, how are y'all doing? I uh, hope you have a Bible. If you do, I'm going to ask you to go to 1 Timothy with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 17 together. But as you're turning there, I want to ask you a couple things. And then let's see how far I get um, with this. Have you ever had a week where from Monday to Sunday, you just thought, you know what, I'd have been, off, been better off if I just never got out of bed. You ever had one of those weeks? Yeah. Like where just, you know, everything you touched, it just went wrong. I mean, you just, like, okay, Lord, if you don't mind, if you could just stop the planet, I'll get off. And, uh, you know, I just like to take, or can I have a, a mulligan? Can I have a do-over or whatever? You just had a week where you thought, everything I've touched, it went bad. All right, now, have you ever had a week or a day or a moment in which you were just completely overwhelmed and awestruck with how amazing that moment was? Where you just, you you lack the ability to put it into words. You were just left speechless. Now, if for the little you have gotten to know me, you know I don't usually lack for words. All right, but there are moments in my life where I have been completely speechless. I remember the day I asked Debbie to marry me out at Cape Spear, and she said yes. I was speechless. I had no idea, even at the time, how amazing that moment was going to launch my life. I, I remember it as vividly as it happened yesterday. It was a beautiful, non-windy day, believe it or not, out at Cape Spear. The sun was shining brightly. It was beautiful. I had done all of my best romantic reading to try and come up with the most novel and unique way to ask her to marry me. I got this little bride and groom teddy bear that were connected, and I tied the groom's bow tie and put the diamond ring as the knot of his bow tie and I had this all thing, and I just took her to the ni- nicest place where I could, and she gave her to her, and she noticed the ring, and I untied the bow tie, and I got down on one knee and slipped it on her finger and said, Debbie, will you marry me? And imagine if she said no. <laughs> but she said yes. And you know what? As amazed as I was, and I was consp- completely speechless, I remember trying to just control my emotions The truth is I had no idea how amazing that moment was going to make the rest of my life because it's been the most wonderful adventure ever since. Okay, that's two situations. Now, third one. Have you ever had a moment where you thought it was going to be just incredible? You thought it was amazing. You thought it was going to be the most joyful instant or example of your life only to find out it was a complete fraud. You had banked on something happening. You, had, you were determined it was going to be amazing. You were convinced it was going to be amazing. And I'll give you an example of that in my life was a 1986 Pontiac Fiero. For those of you that are guys and no cars, this thing looked like a Ferrari. And uh, I got it for $5,000, and I was ripped off royally at $5,000. I thought for sure... This thing was going to bring me happiness. 
I thought for sure it was going to represent freedom. I thought it was going to unlock coolness. I thought everything in my life was going to make sense now that I had a 1986 four-speed Fiero. And it was the bane of my existence. It cost me money every time I put key into the ignition. It in no way delivered on what it promised. So think about that now, all right? As we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 17, an instant in your life where you're just like, you know what, I should never have gotten up. An instant in your life when you were so overwhelmed and amazed, you, you can't even quantify the pleasure and the satisfaction and the, and the joy that it brought you. And a time when you thought you were going to get pleasure and satisfaction and joy, you thought it was going to deliver, you put all your eggs in that basket, and it just didn't deliver. Because I think all of us have experienced that, even our young ones have experienced that. They might not quite articulate it the way I did, but they've all delivered on it on some level. So as we go back, and I have to be honest, all right, even with this passage, I'm going to watch the clock and I'm going to quit at a reasonable time. Notice I didn't say what time, at a reasonable time, because I have been overwhelmed by what's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. In fact, I was telling Stevie this week, there was times I was so emotional I had to stop. I just had to walk around this room for a bit. I was so overwhelmed by what I found. And I'm going to take, and I want to take, and I feel I have to take as long as it takes to make sure we can flesh this out. And I have no idea how far we're going to get. And when we get to a reasonable time, I will quit. And Lord willing, we'll pick it up next week. All right? But I want to recap. I know we have some visitors. I want to recap. 1 Timothy is a book in the Bible, yes. But I want you to make sure you think of it in terms of it's an actual letter. It was written by a guy named Paul. And he's writing it to a singular person. The audience of this letter, of these six chapters, is one person. It was not broken into chapters and verses when Paul wrote it. In fact, chapters and verses weren't even in our Bible until just about 100 or so years ago. All right? That's the way we want to look at it. And we've got to realize this was a letter. It's personal. It was a letter written from Paul to Timothy. But it's a letter whose contents were meant to be shared and acted upon. And you've all gotten letters like that. Um, we're getting to the beginning of a new year. May is, or February is almost by us. Before you know it, we're going to be in April. You know when you get those letters from the government that are addressed to you, they're personal, but it's meant to be acted upon, right? Especially the tax one, all right? You, you know that you get certain letters. I've gotten letters from my parents that were written to me, personal letters, but with instructions on either things I was supposed to do or things I was supposed to do for others. In fact, my in-laws were over to our house yesterday and we were sitting down and Debbie's parents are getting up in years and my, my father-in-law is almost 82 and now we're having those conversations. Um, this is what I want you to do when I die. It's an awkward conversation to have. It's a bit weird to have with either your parents or your grandparents or your, uh, your parents-in-law. And so my father-in-law was talking to me about, all right, Steve, I'm going to die and I have written down what I want you to do. So it's a personal letter written to me, but a letter that I must take the contents of and act upon. So 1 Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy, and it's personal, but the contents are meant to be shared. In this case, shared with the church at Ephesus. Paul is saying to Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus, and I want you to do something. Are you ready for this? How many of you would love this? I want you to confront a group of people. 
I'm so thankful that my father-in-law didn't say, I've got a letter for you, Steve, and when I die, I want you to confront my daughters. That is not something I would look forward to. That is not something that I would say with great pleasure. I can't wait to get that letter. But this letter from Paul was, Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus, and I want you to confront. I want you to confront your church leadership. And we've learned in the first seven verses that the leadership in Ephesus was swerving away from the gospel and from truth. They were straying away from the gospel and truth, and they were leaving the one true gospel for other things. In our case, it was for myths and genealogies, for speculation, for adding to or taking from the Word of God. So let me ask you now, let me make you an audience, a participatory audience. Is it possible that in today's church, there are people actually leaving, swerving, or adding to the Word of God? Is that even possible? All right, some of you are hesitantly shaking your heads. Um, Do we see that happen today in certain denominations, that people are leaving the Word of God behind, they're adding to the Word of God? Have you seen that, experienced that? I mean, I have. Okay, let me ask you this then. Could it happen here at Calvary Baptist Church? Uh, Yes, it could. Yes, it could. Yes, it could. You see... I've been amazed amazed as I came to this church and as I've done it. This church is now a little over 20 years old. Two decades has gone by since this church has been in existence. And I've heard many testimonies of how God has provided, how God has done amazing things, how God has just just given and supplied in times when the people here thought, how are we going to survive to next Sunday? God has been faithful. But let me caution you. We cannot live on the victories of yesterday. We can't be all nostalgic about how we stood for something 20 years ago if we don't stand for something now. We can't. And in our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in the letter, it's only been four years since Paul was with these same leaders in in Acts chapter 20. He's on his way to Rome. He's under arrest. He gathers these Ephesian elders. The church is thriving. It's a mecca of missions. Everybody is amazed. All these elders meet with Paul and they're crying and they're laughing and they're hugging. And Paul is telling them how much he loves them and how much he's preached the gospel to them and how they need to stand for the truth. And they're all sad and happy all at the same time. And four years, 48 months, and in 48 months, Paul has to write Timothy and say, go to Ephesus and tell them they've lost the gospel. They've strayed away from the gospel. And see, Paul's done done this before. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In my studies this week, one pastor writes, it's a solemn fact. Now, again, if you take notes, write this down. It's a solemn fact that any given church can depart from the faith in less than a generation. It's a fact. Any given church can depart from the faith in less than a generation. To imagine otherwise, he goes on to say, is to be so inflated with the helium of naive pride that we are above the human condition and that of the church itself. The truth is, turning from the gospel, from the authority of God's word, and from God himself can easily happen to any of us if we do not guard against this and stay close to Christ. That's just the reality. Now, I want you to notice what I said. 
because there was three things said there. You see, if we don't look out or we don't see how Satan and the world and the weakness of our flesh fights against the doctrine of truth, think no further than these three areas. And this is where you'll see it in church. Number one will be the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture. Number two will be the doctrine of God. And finally, the doctrine of salvation. And these are the areas that are most attacked today. In fact, think about it. Most denominations, most places that are watering down the gospel, they are attacking it in one of three ways. Either saying that this Bible is not truly inerrant and trustworthy, or they're saying they're attacking the idea of God, who he is, his person, the fact that he's the Trinity. They're talking about, well, is he truly sovereign? Does he truly know everything? All those types of things. And they're talk, attacking the gospel of the, of the gospel. What does it mean to be saved? And this is a huge reason why I chose to walk through First Timothy with Calvary Baptist right at the beginning of my ministry. It was amazing to me as I studied this that I learned this fact. Of all of the 27 books of the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and Titus are three of the most widely ignored and neglected books of the New Testament. They are the least preached about and most often ignored, not only by churches, but even in people's personal devotions. With about books that they read and ponder or think that's written for them. And they usually do it because, they, because Paul, the writer of this letter, in his typical Paul way, he's direct and he's blunt. He does not know political correctness. You know, and if you read First and Second Timothy and Titus, you will read about issues like church discipline. Now, how many of you just got a warm and fuzzy feeling when I said church discipline? Right? In today's culture, that's like an oxymoron. The idea of church and discipline are two words we would never put together. Yet constantly in the Bible, church discipline is an act of love. It's meant to be a good thing. And yet we all have horror stories. I, I will tell you, as being raised in church and being now in my 40s, it is amazing to me whenever you talk to people in church, it doesn't matter what church, and you talk about church discipline, everybody will tell you their horror story of how it was handled terribly and how it went horribly wrong. And therefore, we often ignore it. Or what about the qualifications for church leadership? We seem to be watering down and watering down and watering down what it means to be a leader in the church. What about the right and proper way for a church to be structured and to function? Or here's one. First and Second Timothy and Titus talk a lot about the roles of men and women in the church and in the family. And I know this because I've experienced it because a number of years ago, I was at a member of uh, my, Debbie's family. We were sitting around a table having a cup of tea and somehow the subject of the role of men and women came up in our discussion and there was my brother-in-law and sister-in-law had a friend there and we got discussing it and she found out at that point I was in Bible college and she had all kinds of questions for me and we got into a very big deep discussion about the roles of men and women and she thought a certain way so I started quoting verses from 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy and Titus and here's what she said to me oh no no listen I don't read Paul because he was a male chauvinist now I stopped and I thought about it for a second and later on that night, I was laying in bed, I was thinking, okay, if you don't read Paul, that means you don't read 50% of the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Imagine if we approach Scripture this way. Imagine if our attitude is, well, I only read the Bible and I only agree with God where it agrees with me and my outlook. And here's the problem. Some today will say that 1 Timothy is a book out of date, written predominantly for the middle class and for the status quo. 
And yet by rejecting and neglecting these books, we've opened up all kinds of arguments and compromise that has threatened not only the unity of the church, but tragically the testimony of the church to a watching world. And I posted this on my Facebook now. Because listen to me, and here's another one. Here is the sermon and the sentence again. If we do not allow Scripture to define the church, the forces of culture will. If we don't let the Bible define the church, then the forces of culture will. So, Paul says to Timothy, I want you to confront the church. I want you to confront the church for allowing this to happen. They were giving away to culture. I want you to show the whole church that their theology had led them to bad living. Remember, the last two weeks, right doctrine leads to right living and always results in right relationships. And so what does he remind Timothy of? We'll look at it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2, he talks about being an apostle of Christ Jesus He talks about Timothy being his true child in the faith. And then down in verse uh, 3, he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So what he does right out of the gates, he reminds Timothy, listen, Timothy, you have God's calling on your life. Secondly, Timothy, you've God's authority in your possession, the word of God. And finally, Timothy, you've got God's promise as your confidence. But... I want you to think with me again. How could a church like this have gotten so far off the rails? And this was a great church. This was a church that had the Apostle Paul as its lead elder for almost three years. Think about that for a second. Imagine if you could say as Calvary Baptist, you know what? John Piper has been our pastor for the last three years. Or imagine if you could say, John MacArthur has been our pastor for the last three years. Or Billy Graham has been our pastor. Or you name the guy, Chuck Swindoll or Andy Stanley or whoever it is. Imagine these guys that have written books and they've traveled the world and they're known for all these things. Here was the Apostle Paul. He had been the lead elder at Ephesus for three years. He's gone for four and the church has gone to pot. She's just gone to pot. And so we need to understand how this can happen. And so... Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, says, listen, the aim of our charge is love. And that love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So a, good, a pure heart means it's a redeemed heart, a heart willing to call itself what God calls it and to trust God with what he promises to do with it. It's a love with a good conscience. In other words, a love that is sensitive to God and to God's people. And finally, it's a love with a sincere faith. That's a sincere faith that's not hypocritical. In other words, what I say I believe and how I act agree. And this is where the battle for purity and integrity and standing for truth begins. When we settle for less, when we have unconfessed sins or refuse to deal with certain sins, when we shove down the feelings and issues and sins and struggles or maybe our past failures and we try not to deal with them or to pretend that we don't struggle or we act like we've got it all together or we actually violate our conscience, we make our faith hypocritical, we defile our own heart, which then perverts our love. You see how easily it is to get off track? So Paul tells Timothy, I want you to stay and I want you to confront, expose, and defend and explain. And now in verses 8 through 17, Paul is going to break the problem down. Now I'm going to read it and then I want to give us a couple thoughts before we're done for the day, all right? 
I want you to look at how Paul tells Timothy to confront, expose, defend, and explain. And I want you to watch something as I read the passage. I want you to see if you can notice what happens to Paul, even as he's dealing with the junk and the stuff and the mess and the issues of life. When Paul gets to talking or writing about something, he can't help himself. He bursts in the praise. And I want you to see if you can spot it. All right? So let me read it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Now we know that the law is good... If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted now how many of you when you read that it makes you feel just slightly uncomfortable because Paul doesn't mince his words here he really rails on stuff here he doesn't talk about sin in general terms. He calls out specific sins, gross sins, stuff that make us uncomfortable even to kind of say out loud. Now, if you, again, mark in your Bible, I want you to realize something. Verse 8, and we know that the law is good. Actually, that sentence finishes itself in verse 11. So the sentence, the thought that Paul is saying is, now we know that the law is good, down to verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's his thought. But he squeezes, he sandwiches in verse 9 down to verse 10. So he says, now listen, Timothy, we know that the law is good. The law is good in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. But he says, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, if you've noticed, he's just listed the Ten Commandments. But he's actually gone to the most extreme violation of them. He's just listed the Ten Commandments. For the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Notice the, the, the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother. He doesn't say those who don't honor their He says those who strike their... It's not, he's not good enough to just say the law is good, but if you, if you think about those, it's not just if you're dishonoring, those who punch their mom or dad. Those that are murderers he doesn't say thou shalt not murder he says murderers so he takes these 10 commandments and he just makes them as grotesque as he possibly can but then again now look at what happens in verse 12 i thank him who has given me strength christ jesus our lord now notice it's personal our lord and now he, he starts to testify because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service Though formerly I was a, a blasphemer and a persecutor and, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy 
because I'd acted ignorantly and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And verse 15 is probably one of the greatest verses of the Bible. The saying is trustworthy, Timothy, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's the nine greatest words ever put in a sentence for the world. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now notice what Paul does. Of whom I am the foremost. The old King James says, of whom I am the chief. I am the chief of sinners. Now think about that considering what he just listed in verses 9 and 10. Paul has talked about murderers and sexually immoral and men who who practice homosexuality and enslavers and liars and perjurers. And Paul says, now, listen, let me tell you about how great the gospel is. Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the chief of them. How many of us would say, I'm that bad? Paul just says, I am, listen, You know that list I just gave you, Timothy? I'm worse than the list. I am worse than the list. Verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then verse 17, to the king of kings or the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see what Paul couldn't help and couldn't resist but doing when he's writing? He starts out in verse 8 and says, listen, I want to tell you the law is good if it's in accordance with the gospel. But let me tell you that the law is for the lawless. The law is for the disobedient. The law is for the ungodly. And as he gets down and he lists this and he comes into verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And then all of a sudden, Paul's not writing a letter about confrontation. Now he starts testifying. Now he gets all Southern Baptist. Now he gets his hanky out. And he starts waving his hanky while he's writing. He goes, I thank him. And before you know it, the verse 17, he's in song. He's bursting out in hymns, the king of ages, immortal, invisible. Have you ever been that awestruck by God? (laughs) You don't look like it, just, just for the record. All right? I want you to... Paul couldn't help but worship God whenever he speaks of the Bible. (coughs) Excuse me. He simply breaks into testimony. And look at what his testimony is. Did you notice it? His testimony isn't, and this is why I can't stand testimony time. Maybe I better clarify that because this is getting recorded. I love testimony time when it's real testimony time. I could not understand it. When I was this, this crew, I love this crew being here. They're so attentive and writing everything down. I remember when I was their age, sitting in church, time after time, and it was testimony time, and people would stand up, bless their hearts. I thank God that in 35 years ago, uh, the Lord saved me. And then the rest of the testimony was this. Now, God hasn't done a thing with me in the last 35 years, but I thank Him that He saved me. 
but, but Paul must have been a Phil Collins fan of Genesis, that drummer. You know, he wrote that song, Take a Look at Me Now. All right, that's my best yeah, attempt at that. Paul's testimony was never, let's go back to the past. Paul's testimony was always, look at what God's gospel has done for me and what it's doing for me right now. So he bursts into testimony and he says, look at what Jesus has done for me, Timothy, what he's going to do for you, what he'll do for everybody at Ephesus. And so Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling the Ephesian church, he's telling us when we get the gospel, when we understand and realize that the gospel is Jesus Christ, you and I will be forever changed. But what's more is what we're going to see as we start to learn this today, I hope, and what we're going to focus on over the next three weeks likely, that we're called not only to guard the gospel, but folks, and I'm not going to apologize for this, and you're going to find this out. There's a whole new version of me you're going to see because I'm like Paul like this. We are called to celebrate the gospel. I get excited when the gospel is at work in my life and those around me. This week has been the week of contradictions for me because I got the dreaded disease this week called the man flu. It really affects men. Women, I'm sorry you don't understand what it's like to get the man flu. It's a miracle that I'm here. Because the man flu is just really hard to get over. When you get the man flu, you, you find it hard to pick up your clothes. You find it really hard to take out the trash. You're tempted to call your mom. Things like chicken soup or walking down to the stairs for a meal is, is just horrifically hard. And so I had this wickedly bad week this week. I had the man flu. I lost my sense of taste and smell. Feel my pain. It was hard. And I'm joking. I don't like to be sick. I'll be honest. I hate being sick. I hate feeling tired. I hate the aches and pains. But you know what? I got to meet with so many friends and brothers and sisters in Christ of this church this week. And it just thrilled my heart to do that. To talk about Christ to walk through life together. And it just would thrill me. I would be so exhausted. My head would be pounding. And I'm making it sound like it was so worse than it was. I had, I had a cold. But there were times I just wanted to go to bed. You know what it's like? Go take some NyQuil and just go to bed. But I will tell you, I got to spend time with people this week. And when I would watch the gospel come alive in people's hearts, my motor would start to run and it would just thrill me. Because I want us to be a church that all that thrills our soul is Jesus. Now, how many of you, and I'm going to end with this, I promise. How many of you have watched any of the movies or read the books, The Chronicles of Narnia? Now, hands up, adults and all of you. If you've read a book or watched the movie by The Chronicles of Narnia, put your hand up. All right, that's not bad. If you haven't, you really should. All right? I know you guys have, all right? So, which is your favorite movie or book? Huh? Okay, anybody else? Silver chair, anybody else? A horse and his boy? Anybody else? You watch Prince Caspian, all right. Huh? There it is. I've been waiting for that one. That's my favorite too. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Lion, the Witch, 
and the wardrobe. Now, I don't know, for all of you that are moms and dads and all of you that are grandparents, I want you to know something. Do you know that C.S. Lewis, when he wrote these books, and by the way, he didn't write the movies, he wrote the books, all right? He is recorded as saying this. When he was asked, why did you write the Chronicles of Narnia? He said, I wanted to baptize the imaginations of my grandchildren so that when they were confronted with the gospel, with God, sin, evil, and good, they were already conditioned to believe and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now marinate on that. So for all of you as moms and dads, and especially for those of you as grandparents, I want to encourage you to marinate the imaginations of your grandchildren with how amazing God is. So that as they get older and mature, and they are confronted with the gospel, they're already conditioned to just believe it. I think that's amazing. So, believe it or not, as I have to quit, this has all been introduction. Here's the title of my sermon. The Law, the Gospel, and Jesus Christ. So think, I was thinking about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The Law, and the Gospel, and Jesus Christ. Because we've got to learn that the Law is something different from the Gospel. The gospel is something different from the law, but Jesus Christ is over it all. And I want to show you a quick little video. Steve, if we got that video ready, I want to show you a video here. It's just not part of the law's job description to make change happen. Okay, the law is good. It comes from God, but it, but it has a certain job description. A specific job description. And when we confuse what the law is able to do with what grace alone is able to do, then we start thinking that the law, just telling people what to do. I'll tell you what, when someone's messing up, get up and pound them. Just pound them, you know? And if you pound them hard enough, they'll change. Well, I'm not saying they don't need to be pounded. But if you don't follow up the law with the gospel then no change is going to happen, okay? I mean, they'll walk away defeated, but not delivered. They'll walk away crushed, but not cured, okay? Um, I mean, the law points to righteousness, but it can't produce it. The law shows us what godliness is, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that the law has the power or the ability to make us godly. The law can inform us of our sin, but it cannot transform the sinner. There is not one even tiny piece of a verse in the Bible that says that the law, telling people what to do, whether it's God or anybody else, has the power to actually transform the sinner. The law can instruct, but only grace can inspire. Okay? Or to put it another way, um, love alone inspires what the law demands. Did you catch that? Love alone inspires what the law demands. And this is the journey I want to take us on over the next two to three weeks. And I hope now I've whet your appetites enough that you'll want to come back. Is to learn about the law because the law is a word that's everywhere in the Bible. But so is the gospel. 
And the problem is what this church at Ephesus did, what I think a lot of churches today are doing, what I think we have to be careful not to do, is we try to take the law and the gospel and we try to blend them. We try to blend them. And here's what happens. If you make much of the law or you confuse the law with the gospel, and you don't understand the role of Jesus Christ. These are the words Steve and I were talking about it this week, and Steve was helping me out with this. I was asking him some Greek questions, and we got into this, and I started just get emotional. And Steve, I think, wondered what the heck was wrong with me. Um, but we, ca- we came up with these two D words, because here's what happens. If you mix the gospel with law, here's what will happen. You'll either end up defeated or delusional. You'll end up defeated or delusional because, listen, let me put it this way. I wish I could beg of you to read First and Second Timothy and Titus in your daily life, to study those letters, to memorize verses in them, to write out your questions, to journal what God shows you, to pray through those verses and beg God and wrestle with God and ask God to up your urgency meter, Okay? I wish that as Calvary Baptist Church, as a family, that I wish you and I could see and touch and taste and learn and know and apply and experience and cling to and be resolved to protect and preserve and live life by what's contained in just verses 8 to 17 of 1 Timothy. Because if we did, we would be not only revived and renewed, we would be empowered, we would be used by God, we would be content and yet driven we would hope and yet we would pray we would both witness to people and disciple each other we would confess and yet we would rejoice we would weep but we would praise we would be the people of God and we would live life in such a way that God's name would be praised his person glorified and this city of St. John's would be turned upside down but wait there's more all right It wouldn't depend one drop on your performance or mine. It wouldn't depend one drop on our creativity or our perfection or our abilities. Once you get the gospel, we would simply start living this life in the glow of God's amazing grace. And we wouldn't just sing. We would leave here today and it would be the anthem and the mantra of our life How great is our God? How great is our God? Listen, God is greater than all your screw-ups. God is greater than all your mistakes. He's greater than all your failures. He's greater than even your righteousness. You know what the problem is in most of our churches today? It's not convincing people that they're bad. It's convincing people that their attempts at goodness is worse. And it's to just rest in the gospel. So for the next three weeks, we're going to unpack these verses. We're going to find out what the law is for. We're going to find out what the gospel is for. And we're going to see how Jesus Christ is above it all. And I promise you, if you'll come with me for the ride, you'll not be disappointed. For this is a theme park ride that is worth every penny. And you will be satisfied for the rest of your life. It's that amazing. Let's close in prayer.
Father God, I thank you for your patience with me. And I pray, Father, that you would put a sense of patience on my brothers and sisters that are here. Lord, I pray that we would understand how firm the foundation is that is the Word of God. And Lord, I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful for the law. And Lord, I pray if there be a man here, a woman here, a couple here, a family here, Lord, they've experienced the heartache of failure and defeat. They feel so far down, they've got to reach up to touch bottom. I pray that you would overwhelm them with this thought that Jesus lived the life we could never live and he died the death that we deserved. He paid the penalty for sin that we could never pay. And he doesn't wait for us at the top of the ladder. He's at the bottom of the ladder with his hands stretched out and saying, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. If there is one man or one woman here who just needs to be loved on today, needs to have someone pray with them, needs to be affirmed and confirmed that the gospel is theirs, that you would give them that courage and strength to come seek it out. And I pray for us, us that call ourselves Christians that, Lord, maybe we've taken the gospel and now we're trying to live life in the law, trying to keep your favor or earn your favor, somehow figure out how to stay on your good side And Father, there are many people, I think, even in this room, and we vacillate between the two extremes of being defeated, of saying, why even bother? I'm such a screw-up. Or being completely delusional. Or we think we've got it figured out. Or we think we've done enough. So Father God, I pray that the law would pound out all of our excuses, and then we would understand what it means to be picked up by the gospel. All by Jesus Christ. And so go before us this day. Father, may we not quickly forget what we've learned. And if there are any that have questions, or there are any that are confused, or there are any that have doubts or worries, oh God, give us hearts as a group here to just be patient and loving with each other. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Just stand with us, and we're going to sing this last song together.